In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> beloved Orthodox Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, <clears throat> we heard in today's reading of the Gospel according to St. Luke concerning a man who came up to our Saviour and asked him the question about how to inherit the eternal life. <clears throat> and before asking him also, saying, Good teacher, how to inherit the eternal life. <clears throat> and our Saviour, before answering his question, Asked, told him something that sometimes people uh, understand in a confused way or don't understand at all. He said, why dost thou call me good? For there is only one good who is God. People get confused about this because in, our, in other passages of the Holy Gospel, our Savior accepts the confession of Peter, where Peter called him the son of the living God. And he accepts Thomas saying that he is the Lord and God and so forth. But in this case, he says as if, in a, in a manner uh, veiled, some people understand that he's refusing the title of God. And he's saying that he is not God and why is the man calling him good? But this is not the case. As St. Cyril of Alexandria beautifully explained in a, in a homily that we had learned yesterday during the vigil, <clears throat> our Savior accepted the confession of Peter, where he said that he is the Son of God, and the confession of the blind man, where he confessed him as the Messiah, the son of David, and of Thomas, that he is the Lord of God, because they confessed him as such, but this man didn't. He didn't come saying that he is the Son of God, but he said, good teacher. That is, he never accepted or confessed that our Savior was anything more than a rabbi, a teacher, and yet... He used a title that for Jews was applied by nature only to God, the good one, just as the compassionate one, the merciful one, and so forth, were titles that Jews used for God and were very careful not to use them casually. And yet this man came and said, oh good, and yet he added a teacher. That is, he didn't say that he was the son of God and therefore good, but simply said that he was a teacher, a mere teacher, and yet he applied to him a title that by nature belongs to God alone. And our Savior corrected his wrong theology. Had the man come with the confession of faith that he is truly God and Son of God, then our Savior would have accepted his confession as well that he is the good one. And he continues, our Savior, to say, you know the commandments, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not give false witness, and so forth. Do this, and you shall have eternal life. And this man answered and said, I have kept them from my youth up, what else I lack. I a Savior, by telling him the commandments are, uh, by enumerating the commandments he should keep, tells us that in the commandments is the eternal life. That the commandments are not arbitrary rules simply there to make us better people and more moral people. No, that is one of the effects of keeping the commandments, that people become better people in society and so forth. But that is not the point of the commandments. The commandments are life-giving. They're not simply moralizing tenets. They are life-giving, mystical connections with God. As St. Maximus the Confessor explains so beautifully, in his commandments our Saviour himself dwells mystically. His grace abides in the commandments. And when we keep the holy commandments, then we get hold of Christ. We simply do not, we do not simply uh, uh, fulfill rules. 
but we come into communion with God, with Christ himself, when we keep his commandments. And this is evident, how the keeping of the commandments sanctifies. It not only makes us better moral people, it sanctifies, it fills us with grace. And this our Savior tells the men, do this and you shall inherit eternal life. But when he asked, what else I lack? He said, our Savior answered, go and sell everything and come and follow me. These are the words that so confused the man that he couldn't understand what was our Savior saying and he went sorrowful. What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of our Savior's words that if these commandments are not enough for you to keep, then sell everything and come and, fall, uh, and, and follow me. Obviously, this is the root of the monastic calling, first and foremost, the first explanation. For that is exactly what the apostles had done. They had abandoned everything, their, their riches, their families, and had followed our Savior. And in there lies the root of the monastic calling, which is called the apostolic way of life. For San, as St. Dorotheos of Gaza, in his first discourse, explained so beautifully, the commandments are one both to the layman and the monks. There is no difference in the commandments that we keep. Everything that is compulsory, what we gave vows for in our baptism, equally applies to monks and the uh, layman. But what is the difference between monastics and lay people is that in monasticism, we give up even things that by nature are not sinful, things that by nature are neutral, that is, to keep to follow, uh, to keep riches in this life, and also to have family life. We give up voluntarily, as an offering to God, these things so that we are better able, more freely able, to keep the commandments that are compulsory. That is the difference between monasticism and, and uh, uh, living in the world. But as to the commandments, they apply the same for monastics and for lay people. So the first explanation, one may say, is this, that our Savior, by these words of, of uh, uh, selling everything and following him, was putting the foundations of that apostolic calling, which is called the monastic way of life. But there is also a broader understanding of these words of our Savior told to this rich man, which applies more broadly to the lay people, not only as an explanation of monasticism, but something that all, both monastics and lay people, can apply to themselves. And what is this? It is that by saying these words, our Savior was intimating to us, was telling us about the correct way of keeping the commandments and the wrong way of keeping the commandments. For there is such a thing of keeping the commandments the right way, the correct way. And the keeping of the commandments, yes, keeping of the commandments, but the wrong way. So what is the difference between the two? The correct way of keeping the commandments, beloved Christians, is when we keep the commandments unconditionally in every place, every time, every condition, no matter what is going on in our lives, the commandments come first. Whether we are rich or whether we are poor, whether we are healthy or whether we are sick, whether we are fortunate in this life, in life's careers or so forth, or, or whether we are sore losers in this life, it is the commandments that come first and keeping them, and these things come secondary. This is the unconditional keeping of the commandments, and that is the correct way of keeping the commandments. And there is the wrong way of, uh, as well, which is the conditional 
keeping of the commandments, when we put conditions when and to what extent we shall keep the commandments, in that we are healthy, yes, we shall keep the commandments, but when we are sick, the commandments come second and, uh, and stay there. When we are wealthy and where we are blessed by, by, by wealth, yes, why not keep the commandments, but when poverty comes, then the commandments become secondary. When we are fortunate in this life and our careers go well and we are successful in this life, why not keep the commandments? It's an additional blessing. But if we become losers and if we do not really succeed in our aims, then the commandments come second. And in the scriptures there are many, many examples of both, of keeping the commandments the right way and keeping the commandments the wrong way. And I shall give you a few examples of these. Job, that blessed man, was the unconditional keeper of God's commandments. When he was wealthy, when he was fortunate, when he was healthy, when he was blessed by children, he blessed God. And when all that was taken away from him, he still blessed God without murmuring and without putting away the keeping of God's commandments to a secondary or tertiary place. Job's wife was the conditional keeper of the commandments. For when she was wealthy, when her husband was healthy, and when they had children, she blessed God. But as soon all that went away, what did she say to Job? Blaspheme God once and for all and find peace and die, she said. What is the meaning of these words? Saying that complain to God, accuse him of injustice towards you and soul will have, your soul will have some peace afterwards instead of suffering all these injustices from God. And what did Job respond? You have spoken foolishly, woman. For if we have blessed God when we were in plenty, shall we not bless him when we are not in plenty? He is the giver and he is the taker away. He knows why. And he knows that he also gives strength when he takes away. Wherefore, I will not complain to God. I will not become a breaker of commandments simply because my fortunes in this life didn't go my way. Job was true, the unconditional, faithful keeper of God's commandments. Another example from the Old Testament as well. Judith, that blessed woman. What is the story of Judith? That the Babylonians came and encamped around the town in Judea where she lived. And they sieged the town, so much so that the whole inhabitants were in dire straits of water and food and so forth. And the elders of the town made such a council among themselves that we shall wait three more days. And if God does not deliver us in these three days, then we shall open the town gates to the enemy and we shall do as, as their bidding is. And their bidding is was obviously to abolish their uh, praise and their worship of God and to take them captive in a strange land where they wouldn't be able to worship God. And when Judith, that blessed woman, a widow, heard of this thing, she went up to the elders of the town, the councilmen of the town, and said, you have spoken Foolishly, O oh man, for how is it that you put conditions to God that if God delivers us in three days, we shall be faithful to him, and if he doesn't decide not to deliver us, then we shall not be faithful to him. This is a foolish saying, for he is the Lord of the living and the dead, and does as is his will and is what is good for us. Instead, we should say we shall persevere, even at the expense of our lives, we shall put commandments above our lives 
and fulfill them instead of protecting our life. And the men were ashamed that they were abraded by this woman, a widow, and she truly became this zealous and brave woman, the deliverer of her town. So she, because she went and with wisdom went and uh, slew Holofernes, the, the general of that army, and delivered the town from that bitter slavery. By her faithfulness to God, she became strong by God, for it was God who fortified her right arm to slow, to slew, to slay that Holofernes, that general of, of the Babylonians. Yet another example, the holy Maccabee children, the martyrs. Here is the example of the unconditional keeping of God's commandments as opposed to the rest of the, or most of the jury of that time who kept the commandments of the law of Moses conditionally. What was the story of the Maccabee children? That Antiochus Epiphanius, who was the, the, uh, the Hellenizing uh, uh, king of, uh, of, uh, the, of Syria, invaded Judea and there forced upon the Hebrews to uh, the, the Hellenizing ways and as a sign of them abandoning the God of Israel and law of Moses, he gave them the, uh, the condition of eating the uh, pork and foods, that is uh, pork. And it was these three children together with others, but few who refused. And because of that, they were terribly tortured and martyred. They put no conditions of being faithful to God. They said, we shall be faithful to God even if it costs our lives. But what did the rest or most of the jury do? The Sadducees were already in charge of the temple worship at that time. And what did they preach to the Jews at that time? That it was good to keep commandments of God, but not the expense of one's life, they said. For one's life is a gift from God, and if one loses it, then what good does it do to one or his worship of God? Therefore, it is fine to keep the law of Moses, but if, if one is being uh, in straight, dire straits of his life, then he shall, he shall abandon the commandment in, in all, in commandments in order to save his life, and that won't be a sin. Look at this, the conditional keeping of God's commandments. When one keeps God's commandment to a certain extent until sickness or death comes, but if that is the danger of one falling, one can abandon God's commandments and that won't be a sin. That is the wrong way. And the right way is the way of Job and Judith and the holy Maccabee children and all the rest of the saints, both in before our Savior's coming and especially after his coming. And therefore this our Savior discerned in this man that, yes, he said that he was keeping the commandments, but how was he keeping them? From the safety and security of his riches. That is what our Savior discerned in this man. That in this man's life, the first thing were his riches and not the commandments of God. And if he had been deprived of his riches, who knows whether he would have kept those commandments with the same zeal. If he had been poor and sick and unfortunate in his life, would he not commit uh, lying or giving false witness or maybe stealing even, or if a, if a moment came of murdering, who knows? Our Savior is the knower of hearts, and he surely understood the man's heart that it was not in the unconditional, perfect, faithful way that he was keeping the commandments, but from the safety of his riches, that is conditionally. 
And that is why he goes right at the root of the man's sickness and tells him, sell everything and come and see how he will keep those commandments. Follow me and be poor and be a, a, a vagabond like my apostles and then we shall see how he shall, he shall keep the commandments. And the man truly showed his colors at that moment. That, that all that desire for the eternal life of following this new teacher had come, had disappeared suddenly, and he went away sorrowful. And our Savior, seeing this, says how difficult it is for a man who is rich to, eternal, to, to, to enter into the kingdom of the heavens. And he adds, even to the perplexion of his apostles, that it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye, then for a rich man to enter into the heavens. And so were they amazed that the apostle said, then who can be saved if that is the, the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God? And our Savior answered and, uh, to them saying, what is impossible to man is possible to God. So what is this meaning of the camel and the needle's eye and uh, terrible difficulty of the rich people entering into the kingdom of God? Does our Savior say that it is impossible? No, he doesn't say that it is impossible. He says it's difficult, but in this he also tells us what is the way, what is the manner that people that have riches and everybody to a certain extent has riches can enter into the kingdom of God. Yesterday's explanation of, of St. Cyril of Alexandria is one of the explanations of the fathers that the camel really means a thick cable that the sailors use, uh, used in those times. And just as a thick uh, cable, it's difficult to go into a needle's eye, so it is difficult for somebody who is laden with riches to enter into the kingdom of God. But there is also another explanation which concords but explains even more, more beautifully, what is this camel and what is this needle's eye. Needle's eye, beloved Christians, apparently was a name of one of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, which was a small gate. And that was the reason why it was called the needle's eye. And the only way a camel could go through this gate of the needle's eye to the city of Jerusalem, if it was unladen of most of its riches, and if it inclined, that is, if it bowed its neck. That way a camel could go through. So we see that our Savior, what is really talking about is here, is not that the rich people are barred from the kingdom of God, but rather telling us the means whereby. The rich people can go through the, uh, the gate or, and enter into the heavenly kingdom. What is the meaning of the camel's uh, laden riches and the bowing of the, of the neck? It means first that the riches that are given, if we use them properly, if we are rich according to God and not according to the world, that is, we understand that we are stewards and we're supposed to be good stewards of the riches that are given with it, to us, and we share them wisely with discernment, with charity, with compassion towards who are needy, and trust God that these riches were given to us so that we both provide for ourselves but share with others. That is the meaning of the un unloading of the camel's back from the, from the riches. And what is the bowing of the neck? so that it can enter into the needle's eye. It is that the riches do not get into our head, that if we are rich, if we are given things, and if we are 
blessed by the material wealth of this world, that should not be the determining factor of our lives and of our dealings with others, as in Cyril also says. That we are rich, but behave as if we were not rich, if we didn't possess things. And that is the humility of the rich. That is, that if one behaves as if one doesn't have riches and his wealth is not a determining factor in his relationship with the others and the riches do not make him think that he's a better person, a better man than the person next to him, that is the humility that is asked, the minimal, the most basic humility that is asked for people who possess things so that they, like the camel, bow their neck as well and that way enter into the heavenly kingdom. Therefore, charity, beloved Christians, and lowliness of mind despite the riches, these are the means by which one enters into that needle's eye, that is the straight gate of the heavenly kingdom, just as the camel to enter into the needle's eye of that, of that earthly Jerusalem was to unload himself of most of his of his load, and also to bow his neck. Therefore, we see that by this explanation, our Savior is telling us exactly what are the means of salvation of the rich and not barring the rich from uh, entering to the kingdom of God. Let us heed, therefore, first and foremost, concerning the true, faithful, unconditional keeping of God's commandments, that whether we are rich, whether we are poor, whether we are sick, whether we are healthy, whether we are fortunate in this life, or we are people that didn't accomplish much in this earthly life, commandments should come first. All those things are secondary, and we should never put conditions to God that to a certain extent we shall be his faithful followers, but when we don't feel like it, then the, then the commandments will become secondary in our life and something else will take, will take their place. Rather, we should be faithful keepers of God's commandments in every station, in every moment of our life, unconditional keepers of God's commandments, so that we also, together with all those saints that I just enumerated, Job, Judith, the Maccabee children, all the other saints who were true unconditional keepers of God's commandments, will inherit the heavenly kingdom and go through that straight door, through that needle's eye, with their prayers and our Savior's mercy. Amen.